In late 2016, Yahoo announced that they had suffered a data breach. At the time of the initial announcement in September, Yahoo stated that 500 million user accounts were affected. However, things would get worse. Four months later, Yahoo would announce it had discovered a separate breach that exposed the usernames, dates of birth, email addresses, passwords, security questions, and answers of more than 1 billion users. By the time the investigation of this breach would be finished, Yahoo would announce it had evidence to indicate this information was compromised for all 3 billion accounts. Yahoo is certainly not alone in experiencing data breaches. Security researcher Troy Hunt has accumulated almost half a billion passwords recovered from data breaches on his website, Have I Been Pwned? In case you're wondering if one or more of your accounts has been compromised, you can enter your email address on his site to find out. A link will be available in the show notes at cybersecuritymadepersonal.com slash episode 17. If you've been online for any length of time, you'll probably find multiple accounts where your information has been compromised. That's why it's important to not let the password be the sole method for proving your identity. Security is best when it's layered. If someone gets past the first layer, you want a second layer to keep them out. Relying only on a password for access to important data is like trusting just a chain-link fence for access to your company's building. If someone climbs the fence, you still want locks, key cards, or a security guard to keep them out. Two-factor authentication provides the same type of backup that the lock, key card, or security guard does. When someone manages to bypass that first layer, usually your password, they still don't have access to your data. It provides a very slight inconvenience for you, but it gives someone else a major inconvenience. In most cases, two-factor authentication will make a criminal stop and move on to a different target unless the attack is both highly profitable and specifically targeted against you. So on today's show, we're going to take an in-depth look at how you can get greater security using two-factor authentication. Helping you stay safe in a connected world. This is Cybersecurity Made Personal. Welcome back to the Cybersecurity Made Personal Podcast, the safest podcast on the internet. For most of the internet's history, the combination of a username and a password has been the only method for authentication, which is just a fancy word that means proving your identity. However, the password has its flaws. First, passwords can be compromised using software that makes repeated guesses at it. As computing power has increased over time, it's allowed this software to make even more attempts to crack your password every second. That increase in computing power 
brings us to the second major flaw of passwords. It's impossible to create and remember a password for each account that's complex enough to be able to withstand most password cracking attempts. You can probably remember one complex password, but if you use that password everywhere, all of your accounts could be compromised if only one is breached. And yes, criminals will often test credentials stolen from one site on other sites. As I mentioned in the introduction, physical security at many companies almost always requires multiple layers. There might be a fence where you have to show your ID just to gain access to the property. But there's probably also a locked door that you need a badge or key to open. And even once you're inside, there's probably additional controls, such as security expecting to see the photo on your badge at all times, or additional locked doors protecting access to more sensitive areas. However, when it comes to most of our online accounts, there's only one line of defense, the password. Your password could be stolen through one of many methods. A company could have been careless and not encrypted its list of usernames and passwords. Your passwords could have been compromised from one site and then tried on a different site where you use the same one. Your password could have been guessed by password cracking software. Or someone could have tricked you into providing your password through the use of a phishing email. Regardless of the reason, if your password is compromised, you don't want whatever data that password was protecting to fall into the wrong hands. Just like physical buildings, you can add a second layer of defense in order to access an online account. That second level of defense is called two-factor authentication. Regular listeners of this show will have heard two-factor authentication mentioned and briefly described in multiple episodes already, but we haven't had time to discuss it in depth. Today, we're going to change that by going in-depth on what two-factor authentication is, how it works, and how you set it up on your accounts. First, what is two-factor authentication? Two-factor authentication requires two different methods for proving your identity. When you enter your username, you claim to be someone. Then you enter your password as a means of proving you are the person you claim to be. That would be one-factor authentication, since you used one method for proving your identity, the password. There are five different methods, often referred to as factors, for proving your identity. The password is an example of something you know. Security questions would also be an example of something you know, but they're much less secure since the answer to many questions that are asked are things you can find out online. If you've listened to previous episodes of this show, you've already heard about my dislike for security questions. Any login process that only uses things you know is one-factor authentication. Even if it asks for multiple things you know, such as a password and a security question, it's still only using that one factor, something you know. In order to create two-factor authentication, you need to add a second category. After something you know, 
The most common factor used to create two-factor authentication is termed something you have. This can be something like a phone app that generates random numbers, a USB device that you plug into your computer, or even showing that you have possession of your phone by entering a code sent to you by text message. All of these prove that you have possession of a physical device. In order to break this system, the person would have to use some method to get your password and then gain access to whatever device has the proper codes. This could mean stealing your phone, your tablet, or the USB stick. Different types of devices have different levels of security. If you're using a text message, someone could try to convince your cell phone provider to switch your number to a different phone in order to intercept that text message. While this does make text messages a slightly less secure method, it's still many times more secure than just using a password. If the text message is your only option, then absolutely enable the text message. The phone apps and USB sticks use encrypted methods to prove that you are in possession of the device. With a phone app, a number generator creates a new number every minute, and then the sign-in process verifies that you entered the correct number. The numbers look like they're random, but they're actually generated separately by both your device and the site you're trying to access. If the numbers don't match, you don't get in. USB sticks use more advanced methods of encryption that can be almost impossible to break. When the site you're trying to access sees the correct encryption keys present on the device, it knows that you have the right device. However, not all forms of two-factor authentication use something you know combined with something you have. Another factor that is often combined with a password is referred to as something you are. This would consist of biometric scans, such as fingerprint recognition, facial recognition, or iris scans. Biometrics used to be reserved for only the most secure locations, such as military or intelligence buildings. But now, most advanced smartphones can be unlocked with a fingerprint, and facial recognition is also becoming available on more and more devices. The commercialization of this technology has made fingerprint scanning or facial recognition available for almost any device. However, it's important to note that for something to be two-factor authentication, it must use two different methods. Changing your phone's unlock method to a fingerprint is not two-factor authentication unless you also have to enter a password, something that isn't possible to configure on most devices. There's also two additional factors that can be paired with a password, but they aren't used nearly as often. Something you do involves monitoring you as you perform an action. One example of this is typing pattern recognition. Each person tends to have a somewhat unique pattern in the way that they move their fingers across the keyboard. So by recording your typing pattern and then asking you to type the same sentence every time you sign in, the patterns can be compared to determine your identity.
However, keyboard pattern recognition can fail if someone has an incident that would clearly result in a different typing pattern, such as falling and breaking your wrist. As a result, this form of authentication hasn't quite caught on. The fifth and final form of authentication is somewhere you are. This would involve tracking your location and only allowing access if you are within certain zones. For example, you could be permitted to log in if your GPS coordinates say that you're within the offices or at your home, but not from a coffee shop, hotel, or any place else. Once again, this sounds great in theory, but when you find yourself needing to access critical data while you're traveling, getting access to that data can be a lot more complicated. As I mentioned earlier, two-factor authentication requires using two of these five methods. Something you know, like a password. Something you have, like a phone or a USB device. Something you are, like a fingerprint or facial recognition. Something you do, like a keyboard pattern. Or somewhere you are, generally measured by your device's location settings. That may lead you to wonder, can someone use three-factor, four-factor, or even five-factor authentication? Hypothetically, all of these are possible, and some extremely secure locations or devices may use more than two methods. However, unless you're working for a government agency or accessing highly sensitive data for a corporation, two-factor authentication is all you're likely to use right now. So now that we've seen what two-factor authentication is, it's time to move on to how it works. I'll use a few examples from my own life so that we can see it in practice. First, let's talk about my online banking account. In order to sign in, I must first enter my username and password. That's pretty typical. But once that's entered, I'm then asked to enter a code that's sent to me by text message. After I enter the correct code, I can then proceed to my online banking. However, I'm not required to use two-factor authentication all the time. On the same page where I enter the code from the text message, I can choose to mark a device as a trusted device. If I do that, it will only ask me for my username and password without requiring the texted code. This way, once I've signed in once on my phone, my tablet, or my computer, I'm not required to wait for that text message again. I also use two-factor authentication to access the back end of the cybersecuritymadepersonal.com website. In this case, I use a password along with a code generated by an app on my phone. The Google Authenticator app generates six-digit codes at what seems to be random. On the login page, I enter my username, my password, and the current six-digit code. The website then checks that the username, the password, and the code all match before allowing me to make any changes to the website. My final example comes from a company where I used to work. The company moved to a new building not long after I left employment. But a few months later, I went back to visit my former coworkers at their new location. I'd contacted the manager, and she let me know to call her when I arrived at the building so she could escort me in. 
At the old building, I simply had to show an ID card to the guard at the front desk. So I was quite surprised when I found out how drastically the security had changed. The manager took me to the security desk and obtained a visitor badge for me. Then she took me to the entrance to the employee-only area, where she had to swipe her employee ID card and then have her thumbprint scanned in order to unlock the door. I use that example simply to point out that two-factor authentication doesn't necessarily have to involve a password. In this case, it used the magnetic swipe on an ID card, which was something she had, along with the fingerprint scan, something she was. When logging into websites, a password is usually going to be required since many of us don't have fingerprint or facial recognition available on every device. But when it comes to physical security at a building, you can use these two methods in combination to provide a physical form of two-factor authentication. So now that we understand two-factor authentication, you might be wondering how you set it up. Unfortunately, I can't answer that question, simply because the method for setting it up is going to be different on every site. However, if you want to know if a site offers two-factor authentication and how to set it up, I can point you to an excellent resource, twofactorauth.org. A link to this site will also be available in the show notes page at cybersecuritymadepersonal.com episode 17. This site lists hundreds of different sites, apps, and services around the web. The simple interface allows you to either enter a site's name into the search box or to browse sites based on the categories listed on the home page. Once you find your site, it tells you whether it supports two-factor authentication using a text message, a phone call, a phone app, or a hardware device like a USB stick. But even better, it also provides a link to the site's documentation on how to set up two-factor authentication. You don't have to go searching for it you can go straight to the instructions from the website itself. And if a site on their list doesn't support two-factor authentication, it will contain links to email support or social media so you can reach out and encourage the site to add it. Two-factor authentication is a great way to add a second layer of security. That way, if a criminal manages to get past your first layer, usually a password, they're going to have to do more in order to get past the second layer. No method of two-factor authentication is going to be 100% secure. A USB device that you plug in when you need it could be stolen. Even a fingerprint scan could be bypassed by getting your fingerprint from something you've touched and creating a fake finger with that fingerprint. But obviously, any form of two-factor authentication presents additional hurdles for someone who's trying to access your private data. That's all for today. Thanks for listening, and join us back here next week when we will discuss the steps that you need to take to protect your privacy around virtual assistants, like Google Home or Amazon Echo. Until next time, stay safe.
Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Cybersecurity Made Personal podcast. For more information on today's topic and a transcription of this episode, check out the show notes page, which is linked in the description. If you enjoyed the show, we would love it if you would subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, we would also appreciate it if you could take the time to rate and review the show. It really does help us get noticed. Cybersecurity Made Personal is provided for educational purposes only. Please do not take any action on your computer, phone, or other device unless you fully understand what you are doing and the possible consequences. Visit cybersecuritymadepersonal.com slash disclaimer for more information. Cybersecurity Made Personal is a production of Personal Cybersecurity, LLC. I'm Jim Herman. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.